You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast, the very first one for 2024 and uh, Happy New Year to all our listeners. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with the EV Focus, The Driven and One Step Off The Grid and uh, joining me, as usual, as he's done for quite a few years now, is ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, welcome back to the podcast and I trust you've had a good break. I've had a good break, Giles, and by the sounds of that intro, I think you have as well. Um, and I trust all our listeners have. <laughs> and, uh, you know, meanwhile, um, the energy transition keeps rolling on. Look, it does. There's an awful lot to talk about, actually, and to catch up on um, since we've been away. Um, lots of things are happening. Um, we've seen a lot of planning approvals come out. We've seen new wind farms start construction. We've seen a lot of approvals and plans announced for battery projects. We've seen cyclones. We've seen outages in Kalgoorlie. We've seen record demand in Queensland. Um, uh, all sorts of things uh, happening, um, uh, revisions of the New South Wales plans um, to replace coal. Quite a lot to talk about, David, and we'll get to as many of those as we can remember at the end of this podcast. But before, we've got a really interesting interview, and, and I think it's a good one because it actually sort of sets the scene of why we are here and why we must act in haste, and it really is a focus on climate change. We've all read that it's been a record year in 2023 and things are not going to get better in 2024, as we've seen from the extreme um, weather events already in Australia and around the world. David, could you introduce our guest? Because you did the interview um, last week and it's, uh, it's a pretty interesting one. Yes, it was a pleasure to interview uh, Robert Roder from Berkeley Earth. Uh, Robert is the principal researcher there. Uh, he writes a lot about climate change and he works uh, in partly with uh, Zeke Housefather, who has been on the podcast before and who recently did his uh, biannual update on the state of the climate. And in this interview, we cover a lot of ground uh, and it's a pleasure to listen to what he had to say. Uh it's a pleasure, Robert Rohde, uh, lead scientist at the Berkeley Earth Team, to have you on the Energy Insiders podcast today. Happy to be here. Uh, Robert, uh, and uh, uh, you're, you're uh, talking to us uh, from Zurich, uh, uh, where I think the weather is somewhat different in Sydney. Could I start out by asking you a little bit about the Berkeley Earth Team uh, what, what, what Berkeley Earth uh, does and uh, why it exists. Yeah, Berkeley Earth is a nonprofit founded about 10 years ago uh, from a group of people that were originally from the University of California at Berkeley uh, to look into climate change and energy policy and air quality issues. And we wanted to create new, open, you know, more detailed analyses of what's going on in the climate and what needs to be done and try and better understand where we are and where we're going. And what do you see as the um, most important task, I guess, for uh, Berkeley Earth over the next uh, couple of years? So the next couple of years, uh, we're planning to expand pretty heavily into looking at climate projections into understanding where we're going. Uh, most of our work in the past has been sort of what have we been, what has happened up till now and where are we currently? You know, what are the extremes and the variability that's going on in the world today? And we're planning to expand uh, looking more into what is the changes that we need to plan for in the future. That's uh, the most pressing issue, I think. Yes, Robert. And I guess... Uh... One of the interesting things is that 2023, as I, I think, grabbed a lot of people's attention again because uh, it seems to have been a very big year in the in the climate change distribution. Perhaps you could just run through uh, for me uh, a little bit about what we saw in 2023 in terms of 
temperature change, um, um, ocean heat content, uh, sea level rise, and ice extent. Yeah. Uh, 2023 was the warmest year in the instrumental record, going back till 1850. Uh, based on proxy measurements, it was likely the warmest year for thousands, maybe even 100,000 years. Uh, this is, you know, it's continuing the trend of global warming, but it's spiked well above the typical trend. Uh, you know, it's not so much of an outlier as to be implausible, but it was a big year for warmth, uh, driven by El Nino and also a number of other uh, natural and man-made uh, variations. We had also record high in ocean heat content, which is a measure of how much heat is being taken into the ocean. Uh, we had record lows in Antarctic sea ice uh, by a large margin. Uh, that's actually recovered some in recent months. The Antarctic uh, is not as bad as it was uh, at the during the Antarctic winter. Uh, but it is uh, quite a lot that's going on in 2023. And it was somewhat unexpected as well. Uh, going into this year, the forecast suggested that, well, it might be a, a warm year. Uh, you know, we put it at something like a 14% chance that it'd be a record. But it you know blew out those expectations and going at the very high end of what the, you know, people thought might happen this year, so it somewhat surprised. That's us. right. Yes, I, I want to come onto that in a minute. But uh, just continuing with what happened, we we saw also uh, a decent rise, decent uh, increase in sea levels. I think maybe something like 11 millimeters, if I can read the data properly, and also uh, a large reduction in Greenland ice, which I think has been uh, declining faster, according to some stuff that I that that I uh, read recently, and I, I think another is it fair to say, uh, uh, Robert, also that um, many of these indicators appear to be accelerating in their year-to-year -year change. Uh, that's the concern. Uh, so right now. If you look at just the surface warming, which is, you know, the warming over the land and the surface of the ocean, the trend has been more or less constant for 40 years. But there are hints now that we are heading towards an acceleration. The ocean heat content seems to be, you know, bending a bit upwards. The melting of glaciers seems to be moving faster. Uh, there is evidence from what's called the Earth's energy unbalance, which is looking at how much heat is being retained in the atmosphere versus how much is coming from the sun, to say that we have picked up in the amount of heat that's being pulled into the Earth as a result of changes. Uh, so there's a lot of concern that we may be hitting an acceleration. It's a little early to see that in the temperature record, but people are definitely keeping a close eye on it. And um, you'll excuse me, I'm so much more comfortable talking about electricity, particularly in Australia, than I am about climate change science. So if I ask the wrong question, please just answer the question I should have asked. Um, um, uh, but it seems to me that historically, the main relationship between CO2 levels and, the, uh, and, and heat change or global warming is meant to be linear. But there are a lot of other factors that contribute to uh, the amount of warming that we're seeing. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, if you look at the relationship between CO2 and uh, warming, it's been roughly linear. Uh, we expect it to be slightly logarithmic, but the differences over the last 50 years are very small compared to a linear relationship. Uh, we, however, we have been emitting CO2 at an accelerating rate. And there's other things going on. There's a lot of concern about the impact of changing aerosols in our atmosphere. So aerosols are things like sulfur and nitrates, uh, often associated with air pollution. So when you burn coal, for example, you tend to create aerosol air pollution. And that air pollution tends to cool the Earth a little bit by reflecting uh, sunlight. In the last... 20 years or so, 
there's been a lot of effort to reduce the aerosol air pollution. And by doing so, we may have been accelerating global warming a bit by pulling off of this, you know, the smog and other things that were helping keep us a little bit cooler than we would otherwise be. That, that's one thing. And, and then I think there are methane emissions as well. Uh, um, and, and the one that we like to talk about in Australia, which is uh, El Nino and La Nino, because they're so important for our agricultural se- uh, sector. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Methane is a record high. Uh, El Nino is the main source of year-to-year availability in uh, the global temperature. It's not doesn't really contribute much to the trend, but you know, last 2023 had an El Nino event, and that's a large portion of why 2023 was a record warm year. And so um, that was 2023. Uh, I guess, you know, you don't get the same number on the roulette wheel twice in a row. 2023 was above um, consensus forecast. Should we expect it? Should we? Do you think consensus will lift if I can put it that way, or or do you think the the, the observations are going to fall back towards the trend? Uh, most people expect that the the twenty twenty three was something of an anomaly. Uh, you look at things like the North Atlantic, where there was you know essentially a once in a century heating event caused by very low levels of Saharan dust coming over the North Atlantic. Uh, And things like that probably won't repeat. Uh, So we think the 2024 will be more to the normal uh, growth and expectations rather than surging well above it. However, it's worth noting, we expect that the second year after an El Nino forms, is usually warmer than the first. So we're expecting 2024 to at least be similar to 2023, possibly even warmer. Right. And um, I guess if we look a little bit further forward, it's so complicated to to make forecasts, and, and we've already seen that even one-year-ahead forecasts uh, defeat the best forecasters that we have. But if I look out to 20, and I think the overall number is that 2023 is about 1.4 degrees Celsius above the 1880 type uh, number. Is that right? Yeah. So 2023, uh, it differs a little bit depending on which analysis group you're looking at. Uh, Berkeley Earth put it slightly above 1.5, you know, 1.54. It's the first time any of the major research groups have gone above 1.5. The WMO number is 1.45. The uh, European medium range weather forecasting number is 1.48. So there's numbers that, there are a couple numbers that are just below 1.5, a couple numbers that are in the 1.4. But round about about 1.5 is is an easy number to remember. Yeah. Now, as we look out to 2030, uh, say, uh, which is, I don't know, um, six or seven years away, and there are so many things going on, it's, if you had to uh, you know, put your money on, on what we would say that change would be around 2030, what, where, where do you think? So the long-term trend of warming is about 0.2 degrees C per decade. Uh, about Around that, there's some variability with El Nino and other things. But we would expect by the early, tw- early 2030s, the average year will be about 1.5. And the very warm years will be 1.7 or something like that. Uh, so we are heading up that escalating trend uh, and unless we get away from carbon emissions and uh, these kinds of things, we can expect this to continue going up for a while. Yes, and uh, it's very difficult to um, be clear about this because we see some 
acceleration, particularly I think in ocean heat content, you see it quite clearly of something like, uh, I think the number I use is uh, uh, 15 zettajoules per, per year, or I use, or I, that I read. And uh, I'm always comparing that with the uh, thermal energy that's produced by all the world's coal, oil and gas each year, which is about half a zettajoule, uh, a zettajoule being a million petajoules. Um, you know, if that's accelerating, uh, at the same time as we're trying to limit our, our use of fossil fuels, I mean, I, I'm not quite sure if I understand it. We are trying, you know, the increase in fossil fuels is not that much relative to where it was, but we're still seeing some of these in, uh, indicators of uh, change going up. Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of the potential for acceleration is coming from what's already happened in the last decade. And we are right now, 2023 was a record high for carbon dioxide emissions, beating the previous record by about 1%. The growth in those emissions has slowed. And people are hoping that we are near the peak and we'll start bringing it down very soon. But until we start bringing that down, we're going to keep seeing you know, quite a lot of warmth baked into the system. Uh, we need to get close to zero emissions before temperatures are going to uh, you know, stabilize. Now, uh, I have been interested in ocean heat. Uh, I sort of uh, change, I sort of compare the oceans to a battery, or at least we're putting energy into something all the time. Maybe the battery analogy is not very useful. But what is the impact of putting all this heat into the ocean? What are the short term and then the longer term consequences? Uh, yeah, the ocean has been soaking up 80 to 90% of the energy associated with global warming. Uh, you know, and that is going to have significant effects, uh, one of which is increased evaporation. So we are putting more uh, water into the atmosphere at about 70, a 7% increase in water vapor content for every one degree of warming. Uh, and then the places downstream of that can see more intense precipitation events. Uh, we also need to be concerned about the impacts of heating on coral reefs and other vulnerable ecosystems. Uh, there's a lot of places in the ocean where the temperature historically has not changed very much. So even adding one or one and a half degree of temperature change is a pretty big difference for the animals that live there. They may need to migrate, they may need to, you know, or they may just die out, but it's an adjustment that is fairly substantial for creatures that are used to very steady climate. It's, you know, there's many, you know, secondary disruptions associated with heating the climate. Uh, you know, I, you know, we worry a lot about what happens to water, uh, you know, with drought and flood and increased you know, we tend to describe it as the increased intensification of the water cycle. So often you see dry events get drier and wet events get wetter. So you have more extreme, uh, more intense extremes. Yeah. So this this part is is always a little confusing, uh, I think. And in previous discussions uh, we've had, like with Andy Pittman, uh, professor. Uh, he he uh, said that those variations were caused by wind patterns as much as anything else as to whether you saw more rain or, or, or more dry. I mean, essentially, over the whole of the globe, there'll be more rain because there'll be more vapour in, in, in the air. Is, is that not right? Uh, yeah. So overall, there's more vapour in the air. You will expect somewhat increased in, in precipitation. But you also have to think about what happens in the dry months. So, for example, if you've increased the temperature of the air by a degree or two and it's not raining, you're drying out the Earth's surface significantly faster. So during the dry months, it gets, you know, the soil moisture declines and you're more prone to fire. 
And then during the wet months, you have an increase of precipitation in the, in the air, and you are more prone to flood. Uh, it's a very, it's somewhat paradoxical, but you get these tend, you know, tending towards more extremes that makes it hard for people to adjust. No, that's, uh, you're describing what we've seen in Australia in the last uh, 10 years, one way, and I think in other parts of the world, I'm, I, I know for sure. Now, another part uh, that's, um, I think we're not really all that clear about is that the oceans have these uh, currents associated with them that essentially take, in its simplest form, warm water away from the equator uh, and recirculate cold water, colder water and saltier water from the north and the south. Firstly, is that uh, roughly at the, at, the, at the highest level <laughs> helicopter view, what, what, how I should think about it? Uh, I mean, sort of, yeah. There, there is a fundamental circulation in the uh, oceans. Uh, you're right that it sort of moves water away from the equator towards the poles, where the water tends to sink down into the ocean, and then it comes back along the bottom of the ocean and then rises to the surface somewhere else. Uh, so there, it's a very long cycle altogether. But these currents are responsible for large amounts of uh, energy transfer. Uh, they're a large part of why Europe is relatively warm, despite much of it being the same latitude as Canada. Uh, so there's a lot of impact of these ocean circulation systems. And what is the client side, climate scientists, uh, what is the state of the art, if you like, as to how... I mean, on the one hand, these currents uh, can affect uh, the the climate in the sense that if we have El Nino, it tends to be hotter and drier in Australia than if we have La Nina. But on the other hand, climate change is may also affect that circulation system. How, how are you thinking about that? Uh, yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a couple related questions here. So... As climate changes, we're concerned about potential intensification of things like El Nino, that the El Nino extremes may be coming more often than they have in the past. Uh, but we're still sort of, it's still somewhat of an open question. But there's also the, the main circulation patterns. There's one in particular that appears to be particularly vulnerable to climate change. And that's called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, which is essentially the process by which uh, warm water from the tropical Atlantic moves north to the North Atlantic and sinks down before coming back under the deep Atlantic. And it seems like the, the freshening of that water as it gets warmer and there's more input from melting of Greenland is reducing the amount that that water sinks. And because there's less sinking there, it's sort of throwing a wrench in the whole circulation process, slowing down the flows from the equator to the pole, to the uh, northern Atlantic, and potentially reducing the amount of energy transfer that is available to a warming Europe. Uh, so right now, the... <coughs> The amount of change we have observed is not extremely large, but there is a concern that you may hit a critical threshold and the sinking of the waters in the North Atlantic will essentially just cut off. And if that happens, you're going to see a large deviation in ocean currents and potentially large impacts on Europe and other areas of the, of the Atlantic. In, in ways that we haven't obviously seen before, and so there's still a lot of work to be done <laughs> in, in that area. Yeah, it's not something that has happened in historic times. Uh, there's some evidence that it may have happened long time ago. Uh, there's something called, there's an event uh, more than 8,000 years ago during the you know, final phases of the last ice age where there may have been a disruption of this current and resulted in 
abrupt cooling in the North Atlantic. Uh, and there's a concern that that kind of disruption could happen again if there is too much impact from climate change on this system. Uh, another thing I guess people have been talking about for a while is the potential for uh, ice melt to accelerate even more than it has been, uh, particularly in the Antarctic as some of the uh, barriers to stopping the um, uh, uh, ice moving into the ocean get undermined from underneath. And I, I was just reading something recently about how that may be happening in in Greenland. I mean, it's very hard to talk about probabilities for events where we've got a sample of zero. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if you think about those risks, what would you have to say uh, about, I mean, how, re how uh, without wanting to be too worrying about things and and uh you know climate emergency and all that but let's let's manage it uh you know how how real are these some of these risks uh so there is a very substantial risk over the long term that we are changing these ice sheets in antarctica and greenland in ways that will be irreversible and that will impact many many generations in the future so one of the things to know about is that a lot of the coastal ice in Antarctica is actually sitting below sea level. So the ocean comes right up to the ice sheet and can go under it. And because of that, if there's warming in the oceans, it accelerates the melting of the ice sheet from underneath. And there's concern that that will trigger a general acceleration of the discharge from these ice sheets. Uh, what we know from looking at paleoclimate is that there are periods in the, you know, quite a long time ago, before modern civilization, where it was a little bit warmer than today, and sea level was a lot higher. So you had substantial, the, the substantially lower ice volumes in Greenland and in uh, West Antarctica, and you had seven meters more sea level or 10 meters more sea level. And that's enough to basically disrupt any, any port city we have today is not going to be able to cope with that amount of sea level rise. The good thing or the bad thing is that that transition will likely take quite a long time. Uh, so we're talking, you know, more like a half a meter or a meter of sea level rise over the next hundred years. But as we've warmed the climate, this melting in the ice sheet could keep happening for thousands of years and be essentially irreversible. That if we are stabilize the climate at one and a half or two degrees warmer than it used to be, that it's just going to keep melting down. There's nothing to stop it. And that sea level rise is going to affect, you know, generations and generations into the future. That's that's uh, that's the thing, isn't it? Really, the, um, mostly that even if we stopped in uh, putting carbon into the atmosphere, uh, the impacts of the warming that's already been done are going to keep on cooking the egg for a long, long time. That's not going to cool down back to where it was anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. The, the natural processes that remove carbon operate on a very long time scale. Uh, it will be, you know, several tens of thousands of years before the fossil carbon we've burnt has moves its way back into the earth. Uh, it's, we have changed the earth in a way that will last, you know, longer than civilization has existed. So, this always interests me is the connection between uh, science and um, uh, politics, really, is the world. Uh, politics, that is, make, taking action is what I see politics as a shorthand word for. Can I ask, I'm sure you go to a lot of forums and seminars and talk to a lot of people. I mean, it's just kind of a silly question, but how, how well do you think 
political leaders as opposed to scientists in various countries actually understand the, the science and the consequences? I mean, that's, a, that's a complicated question. Uh, I think we've seen in recent years uh, global warming get treated as just another uh, culture war issue that you know you have politicians you know taking opposing sides to divide their voter base uh, with not nearly as much regard for the science as we would like there to be. So I think there are politicians who get it and who care and who want to make a difference. Uh, you know, they often are pulled in multiple directions and they may not even be able to do as much as they would like to do. But there are others who feel like the priority is, you know, whatever will, you know, earn them income and provide money to their donor class. Uh, so you have people that are, you know, gung-ho on expanding fossil fuels and, you know, reviving the coal industry and things like this, which are not not aligned with where we need to be going. Uh, so it's a, it's a very mixed bag. It is, it is. And that's, that's I, I'd agree with your observations on that. Although I, I do think that globally, I, I listened to someone else say that progress, <laughs> if that's what it is, doesn't ever happen in a straight line. And, but nevertheless, if you come back over time, you see that things have changed. And I do think compared to when I looked at uh, this, started looking at this back in 2006, that we've moved on a long way without having moved a fraction of where we, to where we need to be. Uh, I, 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 I guess uh, uh, leading on from that is kind of sometimes people, it's like, uh, who was it, the, the boxer said, you, you know, everyone's got a story until they're punched in the face. Uh, what is the punch in the face, in, in your opinion, that's going to uh, make people take things more seriously it's uh is the one uh, uh well if you let me diverge for a moment i would like to say that there is considerable signs of progress that's not necessarily coming from the political leadership we look at the changes in energy systems and the change and the move towards electric vehicles and uh, there's a lot of progress that's motivated at least as much by technological developments as it is by the need for addressing global warming. I mean, global warming helps set the stage and there has been some funding for development, but a lot of the recent ramp up in things like wind and solar and EVs is being driven by commercial actors realizing that this is good technology that is now affordable and they you know have an opportunity to move in a new direction so that's something that does make me optimistic in terms of uh what is it that's going to wake people up and get people to act what is the punch in the face to use your phrasing uh people don't really respond to oh it's the warmest year ever in a global sense they expand to what is happening in their environment uh, today or in their recent past. They care about individual extremes locally. So you have people that are suddenly you know, waking up, if you will, to the consequences of global warming because wildfires have increased near them or because there was suddenly a monster heat wave, which was bigger than anything they could ever remember. Uh, so it's the local events and the extreme events that are really moving public opinion, in my in my view. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think that's very clear. Now, but a kind of related question, and we're coming to the end of our time here, is, is to ask, about the messaging, one of the sort of um, side effects of the difficulty of science in persuading opinion about climate change, I guess because it happens so slowly, it's the boiling frog thing, 
is that there's been a kind of sub-science on the uh, science of persuasion. <laughs> uh, what, in your opinion, is the best way of messaging for, for the community to, to, to make points uh, about climate change? So if you look at what makes a difference to people and what helps people listen uh, to an issue, it's often not what is the science or how many facts you can throw in front of someone. It's what it is. It is who is the messenger. Many people have this sort of heuristic in mind where they, you know, is this someone I trust or is this not someone I trust? Uh, and we do that because no one has time to delve into the complexities of every issue. So we look for trusted politicians, news, you know, newsmakers, other people who we understand and agree with us. And if they are telling us the message, we pay more attention to it. Uh, that's also true in our families, that if you, if this is a concern for your brother or father or son, you will tend to pay more attention to it than if you just have some stranger talking to you about it. So in terms of how we reach people, I think those are the, the really the main things to be thinking about. We need to have these conversations in our households, in our, you know, friends groups, you know, people, you know, if you're concerned about global warming, share your concerns with the people around you. And that I think is both a good way to help deal with personal anxiety, if that's an issue for you, but also to help build uh, momentum and, you know, make people understand the issue. And the other issue, the other way is to work with people who are news leaders, who are political people, and, you know, have a longer conversations with them and, can, you know, get them on board. And then that leadership helps reach far more people than if I, as a scientist, is just sitting up here, you know, talking about warmest year ever. You know, it's not, it's still, it's sad to say, but it's not nearly as effective as, say, a celebrity doing it. Because people, you know, do listen to these voices uh, more than my audience will ever be. Yes, and, and no doubt. And even if you keep saying to people it's the warmest year ever, that whatever the message is, they get bored with hearing it after the first few times. And so you have to find new ways, I guess, to market and get the message across. Uh, uh, get people's attention, just just like a musician, I suppose, or, or an advertising agency. Um, uh, uh, Robert Roder from uh, uh, Berkeley Earth Team, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on uh, the Energy Insiders podcast, and I'd like to wish you and your organisation all the best uh, for the rest of the year. Thank you too, and uh, yeah, same to you. And that was uh, Robert Roder from Berkeley Earth. Um, David, a fascinating interview. I, I guess, look, there's many takeaways to be taken from that, but I guess one of the major ones is just how far down we are the track, you know, down the track we are. You know, we, we talk still about sort of trying to, you know, uh, this target of 1.5 degrees, but judging by what Roger is saying, I mean, we're, we're growing at um, 0.2 degrees, and before we know it, we're going to be at 2 degrees. Um, it really does underline the urgency with with which we need to act and the inadequacy, quite frankly, of most um, federal and state policies. Yes, uh, that's the thing. Progress has been made. It's not been made fast enough. That's the mess that is the uh, conclusion, the an analytic conclusion. Um, I think my, I'm hopeful that willpower is growing. Uh, and I think one of the more interesting things that uh, Rob uh, was talking about was the personal experience. And I think here in Australia, which has always been a land of climate extremes, as, as we well know, uh, it's just that those extremes, uh, we're going to go for bigger and bigger ride. But uh, listeners have heard that for themselves. Perhaps we should talk, uh, and it's uh, very important to keep that in in mind all year long. Why I get up in the morning to so my grandkids and their and their children can have the life uh, that that I hope they can have, and a lot of work by all of us who are here today to, to actually make sure that we can get there. And 
let's look at what's going on, what all the people in the industry are actually doing to achieve that, Giles. Why don't we start with what's been happening in New South Wales? Well, yes. I mean, look, we've been talking a lot about New South Wales over the last couple of months and for the last year, I suppose. Um, the big question remains about the replacement for erraring um, and whether the state government will, in fact, intervene. It's given itself the powers now to delay the closure um, if it um, worries that it hasn't got enough capacity. But look, um, things are improving, particularly in the planning process. We've seen a lot of planning approvals um, rolled out late last year and earlier this year, most notably for the Yanko Delta wind farm, which is, I think, it's going to be the biggest so far, 1.5 gigawatts. Uh, a bunch of new battery projects around Newcastle and in the north of the state. Uh, we saw Twiki Forrest and Chris Bowen fly out to Dubbo to celebrate the start of construction, or well, the official start of construction of the Ungala Wind Project, um, which was a win in the tender um, late last year. And this year we've seen a reprisal and a reframing of the way that they're going to do access rights for the first um, renewable energy zone in central west Irana, which is around Dubbo. And um, look, the first auction of access rights was, well, it was supposed to be sort of tented with the Altesses, these sort of underwriting agreements late last year. That was poor because it was all too complicated, so they've rethought it, and they're basically going to sort of seek a tender or, or, or seek expressions of interest from more the people who want to build something, find out what they're going to be building, where they're going to be, build it, and basically sort of structure the whole thing around it, and then they're sort of design on the fees. But... Look, I think it's probably a positive sign because it just it does actually show that there is a growing sense of urgency within New South Wales that they've really got to get their shit together and out the door uh, to make sure that these renewable energy zones can be built and we get enough sort of wind, solar and storage projects built um, to at least facilitate the rollout of the rest of the coal-fired power stations which are due to retire by the end of the decade. David, your thoughts or anything else? Grab a couple of yes. things about that. Firstly, you know, it now looks like transmission to Irana is, is pretty much locked in. Uh, and I think that's, that's a good news. The missing piece now is to get the final commitment for Hume Link, uh, the, which uh, the Anko Delta wind farm, you know, and the, thing, the encouraging thing about the flurry of approvals through the um, uh, state government planning process at the end of last year. And I noticed Tim Buckley drew attention to in his piece that uh, the, the department's been split in two. And so uh, climate change and uh, the approvals are kind of uh, brought under the one umbrella now. Uh, but the encouraging thing about the Anco Delta window, wind farm is there are only seven people objected to it and the councils were all very much in favour. And I think this is the risk that New England, uh, where Urala is the subject of an ABC documentary tonight, Backroads, um, uh, will miss out if they make things difficult. The, the business will just go elsewhere. I don't have too much more to say about New South Wales other than um, uh, other, that, uh, other than, as I say, that HumeLink is really, we need to get that uh, see that go ahead this year. But I think we can also talk a little bit about Queensland, uh, where you, Copper String, uh, which is been, going to be built by, the, that's the line that goes from um, Mount Isa to the coast, uh, is going to get built uh, by the Queensland government. And we're already seeing big wind farms, Julia Creek uh, by Enel um, Pacific, uh, sort of get some approval up there. And, and that's another gigawatt. And there's uh, a lot going on in Queensland wind at the moment. We saw 12 community batteries be approved. And that's an interesting topic that I think it could come up again. And I also saw a very interesting, slightly technical article from Paul Simshauser, the chief executive of PowerLink. And goodness knows where he gets the time to write these articles. Uh, but basically, the message from it was that dy dynamic transmission loads, that is uh, looking at how much capacity a transmission line can carry at a particular time, will allow a lot more transmission capacity for a, for a given line than the old static loads. Previously, when we had coal-fired generation and no solar, the lines had to be sized for um, summer peaks, you know, when the, when, when, uh, the lines would sag and the heat would cause underperformance. But the fact is that when you've got wind generation, by definition, when the wind's blowing, that will be cool cooling effect going on the lines and the, the solar isn't going at night time. So basically, you can fit a lot more gigawatts of renewable uh, on, on in a renewable energy zone for a given amount of transmission. And I think that's an important uh, technical conclusion. And then we go down to Victoria, Giles, uh, where we saw offshore wind run into another hurdle. 
Um, yes, well, you're ahead of me with this one because I was uh, sitting on a beach in Tasmania at the time that this was announced. But um, basically, the uh, the rejection by Tanya Plibersek, I think, of the environment the, the environment minister of the planned port in Hastings, um, concern over wetlands there. So that was a very interesting decision. Um, I don't think it's the end of the plans um, for those ports or the death of the offshore wind industry, but it is another hurdle. Um, and it looked possibly a good sign that um, we are sort of taking sort of in, um, environmental considerations seriously. And if things can be better designed or better placed, then that's a good thing. Although there was some um, criticism about the lack of consultation over that, but um, we'll see where that ends up. Um, and we also got an indication that um, the preferred tenderers um, for the licenses in the Gippsland off offshore zone will be um, or have been advised. Well, I don't know whether we've actually sort of um, seen exactly which ones um, have emerged, but all, all that will come in time. That's right. And if we continue our run around Australia, I think we can give South Australia a miss this month uh, uh, for once. I need to note that... No, 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 no. We're going to throw a few more batteries into the South Australian mix. Look, South Australia did emerge through 2023 with 71% renewables, wind and solar. Really quite fascinating. That's so far ahead of anywhere else in the world for a grid of that size. And it's just really interesting that there's been a couple of new battery proposals, including... What I think is the um, state's first four-hour battery, which seems quite remarkable given the amount of wind of solar that they um, actually produce. And this is coming from Energy Australia. It's going to be built next to the Hallett gas-fired generator and base. And, and oh, look, it's interesting because once a four-hour battery, it could be 600 megawatt hours, which would be... Well, probably will not end up being the biggest, but it's probably the biggest sort of um, firm plan at the moment. Um, and it's actually part of Energy Australia's sort of strategy of building storage, be it pumped hydro or batteries next to their existing gas and coal-fired power stations. So I thought that was quite interesting. And sorry to interrupt there, David. And then we go across the Nullarbor to Western Australia, where we are also seeing more batteries there. Atmos and Nomad Energy have put their hands up for a $220 million battery near Meriden. And of course, we had the big storms going over that state last week, um, pulling down transmission lines. And the gas-powered station at Kalgoorlie didn't work. And so guess what? They're, they're becoming believers in renewables as well. Yes, no, it's quite extraordinary. Well, look, this is one of the things about the way that the capacity investment scheme or the capacity mechanism or the capacity payments were organised in Western Australia. You've actually got a whole bunch of these gas-fired, peaking gas-fired generators, which actually run on diesel, but pray that they will never be asked to switch on. One, because they probably won't work when they are asked to switch on, and two, it will probably cost them more money to actually operate. Um, they get these massive payments. Most of them have got more than their capital back, and this is substantial profits. They were built between 10, 15, 20 years ago. They've basically never been switched on for any other purpose, and when required, they failed. Um, so as you say, the local um, the local council is now turning towards um, renewables and solar. This was actually identified in that big demand plan that the WA government announced last last um, year, which sort of talks about sort of you know renewable energy hubs and sort of microgrid um, facilities because WA network is very long and stringy, and you get exactly these problems when you have the storms. But look, it also provoked a couple of really interesting articles, and some people thought it was a bit sort of you know out there, but. Um, it actually sort of derives from a series of studies done by the Lawrence Berkeley um, Laboratory in the US. And that's this idea of having electric trains and actually using these trains as possible backup um, in such emergencies, sort of relieving bottlenecks in the grid, uh, providing power in um, areas which have gone without powers and also being able to transport battery storage reasonably quickly into areas which, which um, don't have any other sort of backup. So an interesting concept about this whole idea of sort of mobile storage and one would maybe you don't need to expand transmission lines quite as much as people thought and in some ways that goes back to what Paul Simshauser from Powerlink was saying and when you mentioned about Queensland about you know we are constantly reappraising the amount of capacity that we can actually carry on existing networks we heard um uh, from uh, Nera, Jack Curtis from, from Nera talking about the distributed grids on this podcast last year and we're finding that increasingly with the transmission lines plus we're seeing the ability of big batteries like the Waratah Super Battery to act as shock absorbers and allow more capacity to be carried so interesting developments. Now, there's a lot more to be said I certainly hope the New South Wales uh, Department of Climate Change carries on with its approval process uh, uh, as fast as it did at the end of December. 
But we've talked a long time. The only last point I'd like to make uh, for this first episode is that I've been reading a couple of articles recently that suggest with the uh, decline in lithium and other uh, uh, mineral prices that, in fact, batteries uh, are... Um, of all sorts are coming down in cost again, and we're going to see um, plenty more incentive to build them. And of course, solar costs are still coming down. And personally, I think the wind supply chain is going to improve. And so I'm as confident that after a year or two blip, uh, things are basically back on track. And I'm still seeing 70 to 80% uh, uh, renewables across the NEM by 2030 without any great need for nuclear. And that's it for me this week, Giles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nice way to finish off, David. Well, look, thanks very much. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, welcome to 2024. We look forward to dis- um, well doing a lot of great interviews and discussion about the energy transition on this podcast. Um, if you do have any suggestions, please send it through. If you have any feedback, please send it through. Um, and don't forget our other podcast too, the Solar Insiders podcast, um, hosted by um, Sophie Varath, and also the Switched On podcast, um, which is focusing on electrification, and um, also the Driven Fog podcast, which will talk about EVs once we get that back up and running in the next month or two. Oh, sorry, I just would, would mention on EVs because uh, I drive my EV up and down the Pacific Highway through the Christmas holidays, and it's always interesting to uh, look at how long you have to wait at a charger and how many cars there are. And of course, it's the busiest time of the year, and you did have to wait for a while. There are a lot more variety of cars. There are, even though there are more chargers, uh, it's sort of keeping in balance, and uh, ended up getting there and getting back again, which I was quite happy about. Anyway, well, I actually drove down on Christmas Eve, and I didn't have to wait anywhere. Um, I saw that there was a massive queue at one of the chargers, but I um, actually just stopped, checked out, and found that there wasn't a queue or anyone at all at another charger just nearby. So I went there instead, and turned out to be cheaper and quicker, and um, had a nice cup of coffee. So, um, so there you go. Um, but look, um, there's actually been some really interesting statistics about the number of charging stations that have been out over the last quarter there's been a 33% jump which is just as well because the number of EVs is jumping significantly as well so um, yes anyway we'll, we'll, we might talk that about that in more detail um, later on look um, that should be a wrap for today thanks very much for our sponsors um, Evergen and um, Pylon uh, for their continued support uh, very grateful to you and uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast bye for now Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.